welcome to our podcast focusing on equality, diversity and inclusion. With this episode, we're celebrating the UK's first Black Inclusion Week. To mark this occasion, I have the pleasure to be in a conversation with Alison Lowe. Alison is the chief executive of Touchstone, a mental health charity based in Leeds. Besides her role in leading Touchstone, I believe since 2004, Alison has been an advocate for inclusion over many years. She was the first black woman Leeds city councillor and has held many different roles, I believe, in her 29 years of service in office to the city. So welcome, Alison, and thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking. If I may start with a question on what Black Inclusion Week means for you and how it's an inaugural motto of be the change you want to see, how that resonates with you. Um, well, I'm quite conflicted in some ways because I think, why should we have a Black Inclusion Week? Why aren't we included all the time? And so actually the change I want to see in the world is that Black people, Black experience is the same as uh, the experiences of people who uh, are not black. I don't mean that I don't want my chicken and rice because, of course, I want that experience, uh, but I don't want to have uh, less opportunities in the workplace, in education. I don't want to be overrepresented in mental health hospitals or in prisons. I want to be able to um, uh, live a life where my talent, my potential is recognised. And by having a Black Inclusion Week, it's putting that mirror up to the exclusion and the inequalities that exist for, uh, for black people, not just in the UK, but across the world. So that is really interesting for me because, of course, the on the one hand, I entirely agree around giving it this particular platform and purpose indicates that we have so far to go. But on the other hand, it's we shouldn't necessarily have to do all of those things. So can I maybe immediately start thinking about the challenges that you still see we are facing when it comes to inclusion? Um, well, I, I think the evidence speaks for itself. So even in employment, employment rates for white people um, is 77%. Employment for black people is at 56%. Um, so it's quite clear. Well, it's 66% for black people, 56% if you are Bangladeshi or Pakistani. So black and South East Asian people, it's considerably less than for white people. That's just one example. If you look at the prison system, 25% uh, of the prison population is black Southeast Asian, but we are only 14% of the general population in the UK. Mm. Uh, so that points to huge um, um, overrepresentation of the criminal justice system, i.e., huge inequity in the way that the criminal justice system treats black people. If you took out every black person overrepresented in prisons, you'd have 9,000 fewer prison places taken up. Wow, what a lot of money that would save. Mm. Wow. I think these numbers are quite staggering. And I've, I believe, if I uh, think back, probably not many people know about those what can we do to help highlight some of these inequities well it, it then in the other side of the black inclusion week this is the time when we can talk uh, about the, the the experience of black people i would rather call it black visibility week so we've mm. got trans visibility uh, you know day and uh, i like the idea of visibility so not having a week that's just about uh, looking at us but it's a week that celebrates us 
celebrates our contributions, celebrates the difference we're making, but also highlights and amplifies the uh, inequities, uh, the inequalities uh, that still exist for black people and uh, posit the question, why is this still the case in the 21st century? And more importantly, what will you do to make sure that this is not the case in the 22nd century? The what can you do, I think, is something I'll probably come back to because we reached out to some of our community, our students, our alumni, our staff to to pose some questions potentially to you. And I know there are some of them which are very much around what we can do, what we need to do, what we can do at various levels. But if I may come just back to your point around celebrating your contribution, and I want to celebrate you and your contribution, maybe as an example around that. You've been very, very successful. But what kind of challenges did you have to overcome to be that advocate, to be that visible role model? Uh, well, I, I don't think I'm typical in lots of ways, because I would say that my major challenges have come from being a woman. Yes, mm. I've experienced racism, direct, indirect, microaggressions, you name it, I've experienced it. But actually, the challenges, the major challenges that have impacted me, the challenges of being a working class woman. So, for example, I was sexually abused as a child. Um, I lived with domestic abuse for 10 years. Um, I have been um, not promoted and not um, uh, given credibility in the workplace. Um, when I went to university, um, um, I had two tiny children and the university were very difficult with me as a result of uh, those experiences. So I, I can point to lots and lots of times in my life where I've experienced different treatment and that has predominantly been because of my gender. But I also know that there have been doors closed or um, conversations had or not had as a result of the colour of my skin. Uh, but as I say, um, I'm probably not typical of, of most women because I've had such a, a varied life uh, life history and, and lots of things that have happened which hopefully I've turned into positives and into gifts which I share with, with people to try to ensure that they don't end up in the place that I got to, which was depression, panic attacks, um, uh, anxiety, all things that I now um, experience much, much less as a result of taking my power back and recognising that I do have control. This taking of power back is something that's really interesting because one of the questions that uh, someone sent to me as part of the preparation for this conversation was how people can influence and impact and take some of this back at a grassroots level when someone potentially doesn't have a lot of formal power, a lot of visibility etc. Do you have any advice or any experiences that you can share around that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a strong believer in uh, unions and the union movement. And I think that no one is truly alone if they uh, want to speak to like, like-minded people. In, in the days of Facebook and Instagram and all these other social media uh, platforms, it's always possible to uh, cleave together with people who look like you, who have got your same lived experience, and politicise, um, organise, um, campaign together. Um, and through that, that, that numbers, there's strength in numbers, and I believe that your voice can be heard when you uh, recognise that you're not alone. You've got uh, other people who've got the same lived experience, but also you've got allies. So even when you have uh, 
somebody who doesn't look like you or hasn't experienced the same things that you have. Um, hopefully, they've got a good heart. They've got a, a, a belief in uh, equality for all, and they will be part of the solution for you. They will be part of campaigning for you, standing up for you. And we've had that through apartheid, lots of experiences of white people being massively part of the solution in the LGBT plus movement, uh, cis um, uh, people being part of the um, you know the, the movement for change. So you do not have to be uh, a black person or a LGBT person in order to be part of the change. You can help us because you've got privilege that we don't have. And through that privilege, you can reach more places and you can amplify our voice, our struggle. And hopefully then we can move on together uh, like a movement. I'm going to come back to the allies and the role of allies in a moment. But I just want to pick up your strength in numbers and this not being alone point, which I found very interesting because one of the sense that we often get is that certainly from conversations I've had with colleagues or students, is that they don't see themselves on campus. They don't see representation. They don't see role models. And I would be, I'd love to hear your view around the impact that could have both on their ability to identify or find groups, but also their own mental health and their own individual self-worth. Yeah, it's really important that we see people like us and we don't feel alone, especially when you're at university, when you're away from home and uh, you've lost your, you know, your regular contacts, your friends, your family. You haven't lost them, but they're, they're not there. Um, mm. And I think it's really important that you do find people. Uh, and if you can't find people who look like you, can you find people who think like you, people who have the same interests of you? Um, uh, you, you don't know until you ask what someone's lived experiences, and also with such a diverse community um, that somebody who may not look like you, actually you don't know what their um, heritage is because um, there's this thing called colorism. I don't know if you've heard of it, where um, there are black people with lighter skin and black people with darker skin, and sometimes you don't always know what someone's heritage is, and that can actually be source of tension as well in the black community I need to say that but it can also be um, a, a way of people not always knowing that they have got people with like minds uh, with similar experiences standing next to them in the same class in the same university uh, and that's why setting up a group on Facebook within the university um, systems to say you know I'm interested in uh, this campaign or I'm interested in talking about Black Lives Matter I'm interested in understanding X, Y, and Z people will join those groups if they're similarly um, minded to do so, but also if they've got some similar experiences too, because just as you're alone, they too will be alone and waiting for somebody to offer that hand of friendship. So please do put your, the hand of friendship out. Don't be alone. There will be people. Leeds University, how many students has it got now? 20,000, 30,000? 30,000, 35,000. 35,000 students. It's impossible you can't find somebody who looks like you or who thinks like you in that university. They will be there, but they might also be thinking, there's no one like me. There's no point even asking. Be brave. Put that hand out. Um, make that sign, that signal. Start that Facebook or other group. And I guarantee that you won't be alone for long. That is fantastic advice. But I think it also puts some of the responsibility to us in saying facilitating the opportunities for people to to reach out, uh, but also to be found uh, and to do that. I like your comments around the lived experiences and that we don't we can't see some of that. And I think this is for me a reminder that we need to enable 
individuals to have these conversations, allow individuals to share their own experiences and lived experiences, because as you say, we don't really get to know what it's like or who they are. And, and you do have lots of groups. There's lots and lots. I, I was part of the Labour group back in the day. I went to Leeds University. Um, and those groups are so essential in forming social bonds that can go on for, for years and years. I've got lots of friends from Leeds University I'm still friend with today, 25 years later. So um, they're another source of support, all those many, many groups. And I think you have got um, a, a, a black student group because I've spoken to those uh, to, to that group many times. So there are groups around you. Uh, you need to find them. But also, you're right, the university needs to have a method of promoting those groups and publicising those groups through the induction into the university and on a regular basis. I want to come back to this notion of allies and allyship. And one of the things that people have posed to me as a question saying how do you how do you move to actually implement change within an organization beyond what some called sort of performative support and allyship so we agree that things should change but little is done can you share some advice you might have from all of your experience in working in local government and other places on how we as a university or even just as a business school can be proactive and really implement some change rather than solely pledge our allyship? Yeah. So um, for me, it's really important that organisations that are telling us they want to change prove that through action. The first action is leadership. So your um, pro vice, your, your vice chancellor, pro vice chancellor, um, need to get that message out that uh, equality, inclusion, equity, diversity are issues that matter to them, and that they will be holding their staff team, their leadership team, accountable for um, inclusion and diversity throughout the uh, you know the, the, the years that they work at the university. And they'll do that by setting the scene, setting the expectations, but also putting the infrastructure in place. So data. Number one, my favourite thing, data. You need to understand who you're working with. So your staff team, what does that demographic data look like? Your, your student body, what does that demographic data like? And then you need to map the journey through your employment, through your career structures, but also through your student body. Are people doing well, doing equally well by protected characteristics? You need to understand that because if you don't understand that, inequity will be um, living live and well in your university through your staff team or through your student body or both, and you won't be taking any action because you don't know. So, for example, if you've got 10% of your students uh, are black, coming into university to one year, by the end of the three-year course, are they all of them getting a, a two-one? Are they even qualified? Are they even getting to the end of their degree if they all dropped out um, compared to their white counterparts or compared to their Southeast Asian counterparts or their, um, you know, LGBT? You know, you've got to know by protective characteristics whether or not the system is in place to create those um, opportunities are working are uh, effective and if not what you're going to do about it so data 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 for your staff team understand who you've employed at what level you've employed people so you know where your gaps are and then you can start your positive action planning because we want black people gay people disabled people 
in senior roles, just like um, non-disabled white uh, cis staff are, because that's what fairness looks like. So your data is absolutely critical. And when you've got that baseline data, if it's not looking good, if you're underrepresented, uh, com- uh, you know, then you need to set yourself some action plans. What actions are we going to undertake? Underpinning all that has got to be training, mandatory training. So all your staff team need to have mandatory training, not just around gender equalities, but all protected characteristics. Because then there's no excuse for poor practice. There's no excuse or giving individual students from different backgrounds a poor experience. And if you do get examples of, of uh, uh, lecturers or the staff giving students poor experiences, they won't be able to say, oh, well, I didn't have any training. They will have had the training. There will be accountability. You can then exit those people and bring in people who have got like-minded views, who've got the values that you want to espouse as a university. You hold those people accountable, but you also put in place all that structure, that training, um, and those expectations that mean that, you, that that university is the best university it can possibly be. Thank you. That is really good to hear because I'm glad to say that some of this we are looking at. We are looking at awarding gaps. We are looking at why certain groups of people do better or worse. Um, we are not yet at mandatory training. Uh, I think this is a very contested subject and uh, it's yeah, they're always contesting it though. Yeah, it's... always contesting it. The white people are contesting it. The straight people are contesting it. The non-disabled staff are contesting it. So it's good to hear that actually we ought to take some more firm action around that. And it's uh, it's something that I think certainly for me is something to take to take away and and reflect upon. I think we're very lucky that we have a vice chancellor and a senior team that very much supports this we've just recently appointed some new roles to give uh equality diversity and inclusion more visibility and more capacity within the whole of the university so that is hopefully one way by which we're beginning to uh to show and actually do make a difference because as you say allyship has to be translated into action i would like to come back as part of this to a question i posed earlier and that is really around how some colleagues might feel unable to impact, to influence, because they may not have the power, they may not have the status. Can you give them advice on how you have been able to do this, for example, through your journey? So I think it's about respectful relationships. You don't have to be a person in a position of power to um, bring to someone's attention inequalities or barriers that are possibly inadvertent, probably inadvertent, Uh, anyone can see when something is wrong and raise that and put their hand up. That's called being brave. Mm. And um, I believe, foolishly or not, I don't know, but I believe that most people are good. And I believe that um, if you're working in a university, probably you're there because you believe in education and you believe in educating people and therefore you want the best for the people who are using that university. So I think if you put your hand up and say, I've noticed that this group of students are not doing so well because of X, Y, and Z barrier. And they say it in a respectful way and you've built a good relationship with that person and uh, that person knows that this is coming from a good place, then change can happen. But I also think that if change is not happening, then sometimes you might have to go over that person's head to the next level of manager and eventually might even have to go to the vice chancellor themselves. So you have got to be brave. And and sometimes being brave can put you on the outside of an organisation. But then why would you want to work for that organisation? 
why would you want to work for an organisation that's not open to learning, that's not open to changing and making their institution a safe place for all their students? So I suppose you're brave because it's the right thing to do. But if it doesn't lead to the change that you want to see in the world, then it's great that you know about it because then you can find somewhere that is. And how can I, and I deliberately say I, as someone who's part of a leadership team, encourage or foster an environment where people feel they can be brave? So talking about inclusion uh, issues on a regular basis. So having real leadership from the top all the way down, all the middle managers are, are, are important parts of this messaging too. So things like when it's Black Inclusion Week, when it's teed off with Trans Day Visibility, when it's um, Ida Hobbit, when it's Black History Month, whatever, that you have um, leadership from the top talking about these topics, explaining that this is an important area for the university, saying that we are open to learning, that that we are not, that it's non-negotiable that anyone should hold views that are incompatible with the messaging that's coming out, uh, having clear routes to reporting so people can talk to um, their managers or whoever about what's happening if, if, it's, it's, if it's not in line with the messaging and the values that are coming out. Um, that there is um, an organisation, there is an environment where people trust that what is being said is actually actioned through visible um you know, disciplinaries, exiting people who are part of the problem through um, having, as I say, a commitment to training, through publishing data about this is where we are, this is our baseline, it's not great, this is what we're going to be doing. Having those regular conversations and as leaders, you've just got to make sure that uh, you also use the data, the understanding of different cultures that you've got in your decision making. So there's these things called equality impact assessments um, that have been around for 30 odd years. And they're such a valuable tool in making decisions about everyday things. Am I including somebody? Am I making a decision based on my lack of knowledge about a group or a, a culture? Um, all the time using uh, the information that you've got at your fingertips and the information that you're learning through speaking to people from different places and different backgrounds uh, to make better decisions. When you do that and you're constantly referencing people's differences in a positive way, celebrating difference, um, you start to create a culture where it is safe for people to put their hands up, where it is safe for people to say, oh, this is a great environment, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to be part of the solution and keep on um, making sure that it improves year on year. It, it, it is a long-term piece of work. It's, yes. it's never-ending. It's not a piece of work. It's, it is a, it's a movement. It's a, it's a way of being. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. I think it's reminding me and us and uh, those that are listening that actually we have to keep working on it. It's not going through this one training. It's not doing this one thing, but it's continuously being at it and supporting it. I think there's us and the ability to create, hopefully, a space and an environment where people can be brave, where people can be felt included. But some of the challenges around inclusion, particularly for black people within the UK, is further downstream. What can we as a university do to support some of that? Because by the time they come to university age, often other things will have happened that may not even enable them to get to that next step. Are there things that we as a university should be doing further downstream to support inclusion? So, so definitely connecting with schools. Um, we don't have middle schools anymore, but I remember um, universities coming to see um, me and my compatriots when we were at school at, at middle school. 
but going out to uh, high schools now, starting to talk to people as young as 11, because I think that you're um, people grow old very quickly nowadays. Children grow up very quickly. There's lots of terrible things that happen. Um, social media is a terrible thing. So you've got to connect people and give them hope at a very young young age. Start going around the schools. Have some um, a, a program which is about engaging the communities that you're uh, serving and uh, create a pathway from those schools into the universities. Uh, maybe you do some partnership working with the colleges, for example, so that uh, people can spend some days at the university or spend some hours at the university so they can start to feel like that at the university and the next phase is then getting there. Um, I think it's about um, asking schools to bring children to particular events that you might be having at university. If you've got um, poetry week, doing a partnership with a a school about what can we do together let's do a mashup together whatever it is uh, you could do that stuff but it's also about how you engage as an employer uh, and it's about reaching out to um, those communities that are, are, are least well served um, and making sure they know that um, employment is is, is is a possibility um, for uh, all protected characteristics so making sure that you've got a recruitment strategy that is inclusive um, making sure you're in those places and are very, very um, visible so that uh, people don't see the university as other because currently I think that people do see town and gown and the gown is very other and alien and far away and you've got to be a particular kind of person. The other thing I think you could do is really, really uh, push your mature student um, offer. I went to university as a mature student. I had two children when I went to Leeds University um, it was. <laughs> I can't believe I did it now. I mean, I, my baby was three weeks old, three weeks old, and twenty-one months old. But I came to Leeds University and I stayed for five years and I got two degrees. So it can happen, but it's because Leeds University let me come as a mature student. So let's push that mature student offer because some some people do get lost. Um, they, they, they want to come to university, they get distracted, things happen, but it doesn't mean that, that they can never come. So I think how you focus on older um, students uh, is another really positive way to get a, a different kind of uh, student through the door. I think that's really interesting because I think from a widening participation angle in terms of outreach and working with schools, I think universities have become better over the last few years, partly because of government intervention or pressures and targets, but also, of course, by understanding that this is necessary. I think your point around mature students and non-traditional students and how we cater and accommodate those students is a very good point. And as well as the comment around employment um, and ensuring that the employers we work with and work with successfully can highlight their credentials around that also. Thank you. I'd like to just cover one more thing um, around sort of the ability to seek support. We know that lack of inclusion and the experience of racism or uh, disenfranchisement has an impact on mental health. And I want to pick your brain and your role as a chief executive of a mental health charity. Where can people go for help? We try to offer some, but what does the community offer? Where else can people find that support that they might need? 
So in Leeds, we're really, really lucky. We've got an embarrassment of riches. So obviously, <laughs> my own organisation, Touchstone, uh, offers a range, of, uh, a range of services for mental health. But we've also got Leeds Mind, Community Links. We've got a huge resource in Mindwell. So Mindwell is um, it's like a library of uh, mental health resources. So um, you go online, tap in Mindwell, and it tells you all the services that are available in Leeds, whether you're a young person, whether you're an older person, whether you're a carer of someone, a family member. It, it is an absolute uh, repository of uh, gold and silver. It is a brilliant, brilliant uh, resource for the city of Leeds. Lots and lots of our employers um, have signed up to be mindful employers. So there is lots of knowledge within employer, employers in Leeds. Uh, and there is a huge army of people who are mental health first aid trained. Uh, and that's at least City Council has um, a, a paid organisations to deliver that training free to um, um, employers. Universities are included in that. So there is a huge foundation um, of mental health support that, that exists in Leeds. It's not as good in other places, but definitely in Leeds it's brilliant. Um, and obviously there are lots of national helplines, so there's a Mind Helpline, Rethink. There's different helplines for LGBT people, for young people. So if you go on Mindwell, it will give you all these different resources. But my advice is when you're starting to struggle in university, the first person you should be talking to is the, is the university uh, they've got lots of resources now to help you as a first uh, part of call. And please also remember your family, because often your family are a huge source of support for you too. And so you have got this massive army of people around you who love you, who care for you, who will help you through this. But the professional support is also an important component too. And your GPs. GPs have got such a lot of information um, about what's what's available. There's lots of support um for um, suicide prevention, for example, uh, and lots of resources, uh, individual pockets of resources that are in uh, parts of Leeds, in neighbourhoods, but also across the whole of Leeds. So, as I said, an embarrassment of riches, but ask, go on Mindwell website, talk to your university, talk to your family. Thank you. I think that's really useful. It's definitely useful for me, and I will make sure that we'll advertise those kind of opportunities and, or not opportunities, at least support opportunities We've got lots of crisis services. I forgot to say this, really importantly, lots of crisis services. So if you're in crisis, you don't have to go to hospital. There's voluntary sector crisis support in Leeds and across the whole of West Georgia. Thank you. That has been super helpful. And, of course, also very, very interesting to hear these sort of experience around that. Alison, I thank you for your time um, and for your insight and for your openness. Is there anything else that you think you want to share around this idea of and I like your term, Black Visibility Week. Um, well, just in closing, I suppose I'd like to say that um, we can't live in a society where groups of people feel that they're not included. We can't other groups and be be surprised then when we have a, a, a culture, a society that is not cohesive, where um, we can't, you know, we see hardship, we see inequality. We can't be surprised that those things exist when we other each other in that way. And what I would say is Black Inclusion Week, even though I struggle with it as a black person for the reasons I've described, it is also an opportunity to reflect on how do we treat each other, how do we respect each other, how do we love each other? Because if we don't value the people around us, we will lose them. And that is the greatest sadness 
uh, of all. So let's recognise the value of all people around us. Let's learn to love again. And hopefully when COVID ends and we can start hugging again, um, we'll go to somebody who doesn't look like us or doesn't sound like us or maybe be nothing like us and see them for who they are for the first time and start that conversation. I couldn't beat that closing statement. So thank you so much for your time. That was a brilliant way of closing this conversation. So thank you again. Welcome.